Please remain standing for the reading of the scripture. It's from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, thank you, Carol, for reading that for us. And good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. Good to be with you all as always. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad to see you here with us today. If you have your Bibles, if you could please take them and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Well, at the birth of the Industrial Revolution, there was a massive growth in the population of cities, as one would expect. All of the development within cities, all of the the new businesses and industries that had moved their way into the cities demanded uh, that all of the people who were working, or rather, uh, by virtue of the fact that that they were built in the center of cities, the people who worked there wanted to live close to where it was they were working. And so, all of a sudden, after after centuries of people kind of living independent lives, farms, homesteads, various industry like that, uh, instead of that, all of a sudden you had massive numbers of people moving into the city. And with that risk came the increased risk and the increased damage that would come from house fires. All of a sudden you had homes that were built almost on top of each other just to be able to facilitate the number of people who were moving into cities. And so all sorts of, uh, of home builders were looking for various products that would decrease the risk of home fires, namely because there were so many fewer uh, fire departments, they were, they were more spread out, they were less efficient. And so in order to protect the investment of individuals and protect the lives of individuals, home builders began to look for new products that would keep homes safer. And there was, in essence, a rediscovery of, of a really ancient building material that had been, around, had been used uh, since Greek civilization. Uh, it was an amazing product in that it was mined cheaply, it was easily manufactured, it was fire retardant, and that substance was, of course, asbestos. 
Now there's an irony if you know what asbestos is because what was discovered years later on after having all sorts of development in all sorts of building from the early to the mid 20th century with the use of asbestos in homes is that asbestos was actually a cancer-causing agent. When it gets into the air and gets into your lungs, it contributes to things like lung cancer and mesothelioma and all kinds of ills to humanity. But in that about a hundred year period that it was in heavy use, it was used in just about everything. It was used to insulate pipes and it was used in flooring and it was used in ceiling tiles and all of these other things. And in the effort to defend against one threat, people had unwittingly exposed themselves to another. And what Paul warns us about in this text today is, if you will, a spiritual asbestos. I'm going to see if I can get that one to catch on. Spiritual asbestos, and that is legalism. Legalism. Now, when we use the word legalism, there's all kinds of things that begin to run through our minds. For some people, when they think about legalism, they think about it only through the lens of what somebody might do to earn their salvation, and that is the truest understanding of what legalism is. But I came across this definition this week from a pastor named Stephen Cole. Here's how he described it. Legalism is an attempt to gain favor with God or to impress our fellow man by doing certain things or avoiding other things, listen to this part, without regard to the condition of our hearts before God. See, there are all sorts of well-intentioned people in the world who want to avoid living in a sinful way. They have all the best intentions and they have all the best motivations and desires. They want to avoid behaviors and lifestyles that could be offensive to God. And so they construct all sorts of rules, artificial barriers intended to keep them further away from sin. And of course, what happens because mankind has fallen is that given enough time, the barriers that were originally intended to keep them from getting close to sin become moral lines in and of themselves. So we see this actually play out in Scripture. The Pharisees, these men who were completely devoted to the law of God, who loved the law of God, at least to the extent that they understood it and therefore were trying to put it into place in their own lives, were so concerned about not violating the law of God that they created all sorts of secondary rules to keep them away from the possibility of sin. In other words, if it's a good thing not to sin, it must be even better to construct additional barriers so that we don't even get close to sinning. And over time, they began to treat their own man-made laws as sacred in and of themselves. So for instance, the law of God in the Old Testament had stated that the followers of God should observe the Sabbath day, and in observing the Sabbath day, they shouldn't work, they should treat it as a day of rest. And the Pharisees thought, well, if on the Sabbath day rest is good and work is not, then what we should do is try to define every possible category we can think of of what might be considered work so that there's no chance of us accidentally sinning. And according to one, uh, one theologian's account, they, quote, created 39 separate categories of what work means. And within those 39 categories, there were many subcategories. So to follow the rule of not working on the Sabbath, there were literally thousands of sub-rules to follow, including, listen to this, how many steps one could take in a given day and how many letters of the alphabet one could write on the Sabbath. They determined in their mind that to write a certain number of alphabetical letters meant that you had crossed the line from rest into work. 
that if you went for a walk, you were only allowed so many steps before you had actually accidentally fallen into working. And in doing so, what they missed was the heart of God that was given in the command, which ultimately was for their benefit and their good, to find their rest in God, to to make clear that their provision wasn't only from their own labors, but ultimately was from God's provision in their life. And ironically, they made obeying the command to rest into its own form of spiritual work. In their effort to protect themselves from one thing, they exposed themselves to harm from another. And so in the very same way that in order to eliminate the risk of of exposure to asbestos, it has to be painstakingly removed, Paul says that in order to maintain your spiritual health, you need to take pains to remove every shred of legalism in your life. That it needs to be uprooted and torn out and disposed of. And as Paul begins chapter 5, he sort of sums up all of the arguments that he made in in chapters 1 through 4, and he now moves into the practical application of his theology. And he starts by answering this implicit question, what is the purpose of our Christian freedom? That's the question he wants to answer going into chapter 5. He wants us to understand what's What is the purpose for which God gave us freedom? To what end are we to experience freedom? And the answer he gives us in the first part of verse 1 is this. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now it seems as if he's defining what it is that we're after by the word itself. But here's what he's saying. He's saying ultimately Christ set you free so that you could be free. And that seems obvious on one hand, but what he's saying is he did that so that you could be free from the pangs of a guilty conscience, so that you could be free from the regret of a past you wish you could forget, so that you could be free from the expectations of busybodies and scolds, so that you could be free from the mere opinion of other people, so that you could be free from the burden of the law. He set you free so that you could be free. And this is an important distinction to make because often what well-intentioned people do is immediately start to place limitations and asterisks around freedom. They immediately jump into a conversation like this by saying, well, listen, now just because you're free doesn't mean you can go do X. Well, if that's true, then I'm not really free, am I? But what's so helpful about Paul's admonition here is that he doesn't countermand this statement with exception clauses and parentheticals. Paul refuses to apologize for the radical liberation provided by God's grace. He wants all of us to understand what Christ's motiv- that Christ's motivation in setting us free is that we would experience and enjoy the freedom that the gospel provides. And the reason that most people want to begin to buttress statements like this with all sorts of clarifications and exceptions is that they are afraid that without them, people will abuse grace and go too far. So they'll say things like, well, how are people going to improve if there isn't some expectation of punishment for failure? But as we'll see in the coming weeks, Paul's confidence for those to whom he is speaking, is not in his own ability to put in rails around their behavior or to correct their excesses. Rather, his confidence for their life is that the Holy Spirit who indwells believers will have his perfect way in their life. 
And there is likely a lesson for all of us in this to learn because we are all legalists at heart. And our tendency is to be very quick to try to cajole and condemn others, but that is how legalists become Pharisees. And it's a tendency that we ought not indulge. But what Paul is demonstrating in this text is that it is the reminder of the Savior's work and love that actually does a transforming work in people's lives. So one author, a man named Steve Brown, said it this way, the truth is that the only people who get better are people who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. I want you to hear that again. The only people who get better are people who know that if they never get better, God will love them anyway. And if we think about the implications of that for a moment, we understand the truth that it presents in our life, which is that if the motivation we have to improve, to get better, to become more obedient, to become better people is merely out of fear, fear of disappointment, fear of failure, fear of sin, fear of judgment, fear of wrath, if that is our only motivation, what does that reveal about our hearts? It reveals that in some sense or another, we don't actually trust and believe in the love and the mercy and the grace of God. That once again, we have to do something in order to guarantee our place. And as Brown points out in his book, the only people who actually get better are those who realize that if they never got better, God would still love them. Now, as we come into the second half of verse 1, I want you to notice, notice something. For the eagle-eyed among you, you may have already noticed it, which is that we are now in the fifth chapter of this book, and to my reckon at least, we've only seen one command so far. Paul wrote for four whole chapters before giving us that first command. He gave it in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, and here's what he wrote. He, he said, I want you to be as I am. And within the context of chapter 4, what he's saying is that he wanted us to experience the freedom of the law, freedom from the law, rather, that he himself experienced. Well, now, here he comes with his second command in the book of Galatians, and the doers among us, the list makers among us, are going, finally, here's where I get to do my part. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. I'll knock it out of the park. All right, here we go. Second half of verse 1. Here's the instruction and the command. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, that's hardly satisfying for the rule followers among us. But Paul says, if you are looking for a rule to follow here, here it is. As a Christian, stand firm, defend, do not buckle in your Christian freedom. Don't go back. Don't for one minute, Christian, give in to those who would try to put you back into the bondage of the law. Don't give in to the voice of those who would say it's Jesus plus something else. Don't forget your acceptance before God and try to go back to the slavery of performance-oriented, guilt-driven, behavior-policing religion. And the reason this has to be said is that any sort of freedom that human beings can experience inevitably faces the specter of encroachment and removal. You can think about it in any element of the human experience. We can think about it in political terms, governmental terms, personal terms, relational terms. Any sort of freedom that you experience is constantly under the threat of encroachment. 
And in the very same way, your spiritual freedom, your Christian freedom, the freedom that was given and granted to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ by the sovereign gift of a holy and loving Father is something that has to be defended, protected, stood up in, and not given an inch on. And if you are not on guard, your natural inclination will be to give up your freedom piece by piece and eventually find yourself back in slavery. But Paul says, since the purpose of your Christ-provided freedom is to be free, follow the logic, since the purpose of your freedom is to be free, to give it up would be to abandon what God intended for your life. It would be to live outside of God's will and intention for your life. And to prove that point, Paul jumps back into the argument that he first gave in chapter 2. Look what he says in verse 2 of chapter 5. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, remember this was the big push of the Judaizers of the day, coming to Gentile men who had been converted into Christianity and saying to them, if you really know and love Jesus Christ, you'll be circumcised and therefore demonstrate your sincerity to God. He says, if you accept circumcision, listen, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is then obligated to keep the whole law. And as we talked about at length several weeks ago, what Paul is saying is that the functional advantage that is found in Jesus Christ, which is your righteousness, your acceptance, your sonship, is gone the moment you think you have to bring something else to the table. By living under the law, you are functionally forfeiting your privilege in Christ. You're saying to God, thanks but no thanks. I've got it under control. I can do it myself. And Paul goes so far as to say, if at any point in your life you insist on a behavior, on something that you can do to provide your standing before God, you have put yourself back under the law and now you're responsible for all of it. You don't get to pick and choose the portions of the law that you're going to obey. If you insist on obedience to one point of the law for your standing in God, then you are necessarily responsible for all of it. And then, says Paul, you're responsible to obey all 613 commands of the Old Testament perfectly all the time from the moment you were born to the moment you die. Go. And as he points to circumcision once again, which again is the push of the Judaizers, what he's saying is they are trying to return you to the custom and the sign of the old covenant. And Paul says, if you give away your freedom at this one point by thinking that you make yourself acceptable to God through the sign of circumcision, then you lose your foothold on freedom. And you begin to slide into slavery. And so for us, while the conversation is very likely not circumcision, the question for us is what are those things in your life, those laws that you've created, those laws that you've placed yourself under, that you are depending on for any of your standing before God? Because what God is saying is whether or not that law is found in the Old Covenant or not, any law that you add to the grace of Jesus Christ for your salvation and your standing in his sight makes you responsible for all of the Old Covenant law. So don't go back. And look how he describes what happens if you do. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ. 
you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, to understand this again in context, we have to understand what Old Testament circumcision did. The Old Testament circumcision was given by God to the Israelites, and it was a way of saying, in the cutting of the flesh, it was a way of saying, if I abandon God, may the same thing happen to me. May may I be cut away from the nation of Israel. And that's exactly the argument the Judaizers were making. They're saying you want to be part of the nation of Israel. You want to be part of ethnic Israel by virtue of following this sign. So go through with circumcision so that you can have this privilege. But what Paul is saying is if you go through with it, instead what you are now doing is severing yourself from Christ. And at first reading what we What we assume here might be that Paul is saying that if a Christian slips back into living by the law, he loses his salvation. Now, we know that that's not the case, and we know that from various scriptures, but I'll just point to one in particular written by Paul, the very same author who gives us this text, and it comes from Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Here's what Paul says. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen to this. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the work begins with Christ in your life, and the only thing that carries that work through in your life is also Christ. It is God, ultimately, who knew you before the foundations of the world. It was him who predestined you for salvation through the Son. It was God himself who who called you, who provided your justification, and ultimately will bring about your glorification, which is to be in his presence eternally. And he's saying that the Christian can be confident in that salvation because if Christ began the work in you, Christ will complete his work in you. He does the work, and you are the recipient, past tense, of the work that he does. So then what is he saying in verse 4? Well, to paraphrase one commentator, what he's saying is, if you try to earn your justification, Christ becomes like a stranger to you. And I think anyone who's slipped into the trap of trying to earn their righteousness can vouch for this. The experience that so many Christians have when they first come to know Christ is an unbelievable relief a weight off their shoulders. I've talked to so many believers over the years who said, man, I can remember the first time that Christ really revealed himself to me. And I remember when I came to saving faith, I felt like a burden fell off my back. I felt free and light. I felt a joy like I hadn't experienced before. But so often what happens is, as soon as someone has that experience of freedom, They get into the religious church world and they begin to adapt all of the law that they see around them. And the joy of their salvation, the freedom that they've experienced in Christ begins to dissipate very quickly. And once again, they find themselves under a burden. 
A different burden this time, but a burden nonetheless. I've got to prove myself. I've got to pay God back. I've got to somehow express my sincerity to him. They slip back into the mindset of the law, and immediately the pressure returns. The failure takes place. The shame mounts, and the joy is removed. And God begins to feel distant to you. And the reason that God begins to feel distant to Christians who are trying to obey the law is because they are trying to remove him from the position of father and put him back in the position of judge. God is saying, I have a whole new relationship with you, and the relationship that I have with you is that of a father. I love you, and I know you, and I meet your needs, and before you even ask me for anything, I'm already in the process of giving you what you most desperately need, and you can come to me and call me Abba Father. You can call me Daddy is the, is the translation for that. It's the way that a child comes to his father. But we're not satisfied with that. We want to prove something. And so we begin to move God out of the position of father in our life, and we try to put him back into the role of judge so that we can demonstrate our own sincerity. It is a terrible, terrible place to try to live. But many of us, myself included, have found ourselves in seasons satisfied with interacting with God this way. We would just as soon go unnoticed by God, fly under the radar as it were. We would just as soon try to squeak into heaven than to indulge in the depth of God's grace and love for us. But that is not the good news that the gospel delivers. The good news of the gospel, according to one theologian, is that Christ frees us from the need to obnoxiously focus on our goodness, our commitment, and our correctness. Religious, religion has made us obsessive, almost beyond endurance. Jesus invited us to a dance, and we've turned it into a march of soldiers, always checking to see if we're doing it right and are in step with and in line with the other soldiers. We know a dance would be more fun, but we believe we must go through hell to get to heaven, so we keep marching. For some of us, we refuse to believe this because we're so full of self-loathing and guilt. And for some, it's born of a misunderstanding of God's love. For, for some, it's born of a misplaced sense of duty and obligation that assumes we can pay, pay God back for the inestimable gift he's given. But whatever the cause, listen, if you find yourself starting to see God as distant, if your experience with him, your daily interaction with him isn't as a loving father who hears your prayers and loves to spend time with you, but as a distant, far away judge, if that's your experience of him, it is likely an indication that you have slipped back into legalism and self-righteousness. But notice the alternative that Paul presents in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Waiting is hard for us. 
waiting in any area of life is something that we don't look forward to. It is probably my least favorite thing to do. Waiting in a line for an undetermined period of time to order food or to wait for a concert or whatever it is is the thing that I least enjoy. I don't like waiting. But what Paul says here is we eagerly await this one thing. As believers, there is something we are eagerly longing for, and the waiting that he's talking about is the reunion that awaits all believers in Christ, where our faith is now made into sight, where the righteousness in which God views us is fully realized in his presence. It's the moment where we are not only released from the penalty and power of sin as we are now, but where we are also finally released from the very presence of sin. And far from simply hoping to squeak into heaven by the frailty of our own good works, those who by faith rest in the perfect, finished work of Christ eagerly await meeting God. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, do you eagerly await meeting him? Are you looking forward to seeing God or is there a sense of existential dread at the very thought of it? a deep-rooted fear of what's going to happen. And what Paul is saying is that fear is born of one of two things. Either one, you don't know Christ at all, in which case, understand, there ought to be a fear. Because the God of the universe, who is absolutely holy, as we sang about this morning, meaning he is set apart and different, he is perfectly righteous, he never sins, he never fails, he has a perfect standard and he has upheld it perfectly and completely for all of time and eternity. That God that we're going to meet face to face, who has given us a gift in his son by which we can come to know him and be with him and spend time with him and love him, that gift we have turned down and now we're going to look him face to face and that is terrible terrifying thought. But the second reason that people fear looking into the face of God is because they are approaching him, even as sons and daughters, through a legalistic lens. What is God going to say about me? What is he going to think? Have I done enough good things? Have I really showed myself faithful in enough areas? And what this passage is saying is the reason that you get to eagerly await standing face to face with God is because we have faith in the finished and perfect work of Jesus Christ as Son. In other words, because we've been freed by Christ, we don't need to shudder at the thought of our judgment day because to paraphrase the words of one theologian, in Jesus, our judgment day was moved from the future to the past. For the Christian, your judgment day was experienced 2,000 years ago on Christ's cross. And all the wrath that you deserved was put onto him. And so when you come face to face with Christ, it will not be in judgment, in wrath rather, but it will be a reunion, one to be eagerly anticipated. Since on the cross, Jesus paid for all the penalty for my sin, there is nothing left to be done. Jesus isn't looking at me saying, okay, I did my part, now you do yours. He's saying and said, it is finished and there remains nothing for you to do. And after reminding these believers of this truth, Paul says in verse 7, you were running well. You can hear it almost to the fatherly tone in his voice. He's saying you were doing so good at believing this. 
You believed this and you had that joy and you had that anticipation. You had that confidence. So who hindered you from obeying the truth? And a better way to understand this might be, who hindered you from being persuaded or convinced of the gospel truth? The word that is translated obedience in our, in our, in our Bibles in this particular text is most often translated as persuaded or convinced in its usage in the New Testament. Who convinced you of something else? Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. In other words, it's not God telling you to do these things. And so the question then is this, if the call of legalism is not from God, who is it from? Well, there's only one other option. The call to legalism is a call from the devil himself. And that sounds like strong language. But do you understand that The devil does not want you to know and trust Christ, but if you have already trusted for Christ Christ for salvation, the devil will be more than happy to settle for you living the remainder of your life in slavery to the law, miserable and ineffective and self-righteous. Because in that lifestyle, God gets no glory and gets no praise. And Satan would love for you to spend all of your years on earth miserable and doubting and questioning and beating yourself up for failures, or conversely, sitting in an ivory tower of pride at what a good job you feel you've done. He'll settle for either. So watch it, says Paul, because, verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. It only takes a little bit of leaven to make bread rise. And what he's saying here is legalism spreads It is contagious and it is a sickness. So what do we do with it? Verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. So Paul makes his case. He reminds them of the gospel, but ultimately his confidence is not in anything he's going to say. His confidence is in the Lord that the Holy Spirit is going to convince these people of the truth that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is, whoever's spreading this false gospel, he's going he's gonna to feel it. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. It doesn't seem like church language. It's a little uncomfortable. Paul says, I trust that all of you will return to the truth you know. After all, I've been willing to suffer persecution for the truth of what I've declared to you. And as far as those who trouble you with their false doctrine, I wish they would emasculate themselves. In essence, what he's saying is this. These people that are insisting on circumcision, I wish they'd just go all the way. Pretty harsh. But the harshness is deserved because legalism is, in and of itself, a form of sin. But it's a form of sin that is particularly deadly. It's particularly deadly because it masquerades as safety. It's an enemy that poses as an ally. It's a cancer that pretends to be a cure. 
So like any cancer, it has to be cut out. Just like asbestos, it has to be carefully and completely removed and disposed of. But the means to removing it isn't to try really hard not to be legalistic. Because then you become a legalist about legalism. Then you become a Pharisee about Phariseeism. No, the means to removing it is to see something else as infinitely more desirable. There is a story told, and it may be apocryphal, but it illustrates the idea well. It comes from the same book that I quoted earlier by Steve Brown, and here's the apocryphal story. Abraham Lincoln went to a slave market where he noted a young woman being auctioned off to the highest offer. He bid on her and won, and as he walked off with his, quote, property, he turned to the woman and said, you're free. Yeah, what does that mean, she replied. It means that you're free, he responded. Does that mean I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, replied Lincoln, smiling. It means you can say whatever you want to say. Does it mean, she asked incredulously, that I can be wherever I want, whatever I want to be? Yes, you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean, the young woman said hesitantly, that I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, it means you are free and can go wherever you want to go. Then said the young woman with tears welling up in her eyes, I think I'll go with you. That, says Brown, is what God has done for us. It is what the Christian faith is all about. We have been bought with a price, the price of God's own son. We now have a new master, one who, once he paid the price, set us free. That is the freedom into which Christ has made you free. A freedom to stand up in, a freedom to defend, a freedom to fight for, and a freedom to enjoy. Free in Christ. And as we said last week, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray together. Lord God, I realize that everything in us fights against a text like this because we're always waiting for the other shoe. We're always waiting for the ifs and the ands and the buts. We're always waiting for the exceptions and the clarifications. We're waiting for the things that tell us that we're not really free, that there is still a string attached. But God, the beauty and the wonder of the gospel is that you have made us free, wholly and completely free free to obey and free to fail, free to find forgiveness, free to extend forgiveness, free to live in peace, free to struggle. And so God, for all of us in this room this morning who struggle with our freedom, and I'd venture to say that that's all of us to some extent or another, God, would you remind us of the wonder to which we've been called? And that in seeing that we have absolute freedom, with no exception, freedom to say what we want and be what we want and go where we want, that what we would desire most is to be with you. So do that in us, God, because only you can do it. And God, help us not to give an inch when demands are made upon our freedom. 
Help us to enjoy what you paid for with your own blood. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.